The Global Football Show. Hosted by Phil Brown and Callum McFadden. A co-BTP Football CFB production. A show that covers all the breaking news and talking points in football happening across the globe. The Global Football Show. Whispers in the shadows. Crowd blessing voices. Hating waiting. Hey boy, they shout. Have you got any money? And I say, I'm gonna need some money and I take a white curry. I'm on the way home to my wife. She's been lighting up the cutlery and now she's expecting me. I lost in her glasses and pulling out the coke. I'm down in a Tuesday shirt up in the Yes, hello folks. Welcome to the Global Football Show again. I'm your host as always, Phil Brown. Join my regular co-host there, Cal McFadden, of course, a co-BTP Football CFB production. So much to talk about today's show. We'll talk transfers, of course. We'll talk about the Premier League return. We'll talk about an incredible story breaking out of Portugal, where the tax authorities have invaded all three of the top, well, most a lot of clubs, but mainly the top three, which is, of course, a huge story. And lots of other things happening in Portugal. And then we'll have a little interesting debate at the end about who would you rather play for, Clough or Ferguson? We'll see who does what, who says what on that. And as usual, I will always be right. So let me welcome my co-host there, Callum. How are you doing, mate? Not bad at all, Phil. How are you? Oh, good. Okay, oh, a long, long weekend. Um, my daughter's birthday this weekend, so I had some fun there. But um, you know, obviously, hoping the social situation here in the US improves soon. Uh, it's very, very. Very, very depressing out there at the minute. Hopefully, this football show can, for many of us in the US and wherever you are around the world, can be a temporary rest right from some of those social situations the plague is at the moment. Um, Callum, of course, transfers. Interesting thing, we'll start there. Interesting uh, breaking news at the moment that the English Premier League are looking to move the transfer window, asking FIFA if they can move the transfer window from August to October. Now, Let's talk about this for a second because we had a debate on this show about two weeks ago about the transfer window. And the one thing that's been consistent about the transfer window is it's constantly, it's constantly been wrong. It never produced the results it intended. Uh, also, English football done something totally inexplicable when they decided to close the transfer window when their season started. It wasn't in line with their European counterparts. And they did this for two years and naturally had a very, very predictable outcome. It makes you wonder, there's supposed to be high-end people at the top of these football clubs making enormous amounts of money that are supposed to be better educated than the average fan. And yet, they done something that was entire, uh, that put English football clubs at a disadvantage that was entirely predictable. That it was the only thing that was going to happen. Prior to the coronavirus, they then decided that they want to move the transfer window in line with the rest of Europe. And obviously, with what's happened since, throwing everything up in the air. Now they're going to go back to FIFA and say, actually, we want it from August to October. I would imagine, given the fact that we've already seen what will happen uh, if transfer windows aren't in line with the European counterparts, I would imagine they'll get some pushback from this. However, where it might help them is it would appear that English clubs may be the only clubs that have any money to spend this season. Some of the stuff going on in Spain at the moment with Barcelona, uh, talking about as much as 70% pay cuts being required, Real Madrid, um, and even some English clubs, Calum, Liverpool themselves, uh, according to some breaking news, they will have no money to spend this summer. Well, that's it in terms of the transfer window. It's going to be interesting in terms of Liverpool. 
that news is coming in from Yang and Defortov, who said, this is a direct quote from the Gavin Jules podcast um, from ESPN. I called a guy at Liverpool that I trust very much, and he said that the American owners have been very clear with Klopp. They can't afford Werner. They won't take him. You don't have the money. And just expect not to be getting any money during what they are calling the corona transfer window. So that from Jan, from someone high up at Liverpool there, suggests that, as you've rightly said, there's going to potentially maybe only be a handful of clubs that can afford to spend this summer. If I was to speculate on those clubs, I would expect Manchester United to be one of them. I'd expect Bayern Munich to be another of them. Um, Manchester City, you would normally put in that bracket, but with the the FFP sort of court case going to be being discussed over the summer, that might rule them out. They might be more conservative um, for that reason. Um, it's going to be interesting, Phil. I think, as, as you've rightly said, it's it's a situation that's unprecedented. Liverpool, they're referring to it as the corona transfer window. It's going to be very different. And the main thing that we had when we spoke to Raf Honigstein last week was clubs are reluctant to sell their players on the cheap. Even though the, the, the market values are depreciating because of the circumstances, they're still reluctant to let a, a Havertz or a Sancho go for what they consider to be lower than the usual normal market value that they would get any other time. True. Then there's the other part of this. When you're going to go and ask them to take 70% pay cuts, uh, then you lose the player. Then the player turns around and says, depreciated value or not, I want to leave. And um, as we've seen time and time again, players, when they're unhappy, only one thing happens, their value plummets because they don't give you the performances you need to be able to sell them off the back of it. And... Um, it never ends well once a player wants to leave. So there's going to be so many permutations. The question is, where do you go? Um, lots of football clubs are going to have to get real. Look, football clubs somewhat created this nonsense in the first place by giving out unbelievably ridiculous contracts. Barcelona had money burning in their pocket from, Timo Bar- from uh, Neymar and really just ran out and spent it really quickly uh, without any major thought going into it and found themselves in a massive financial hole because, of course, Dembele is a, is a huge problem for them, uh, continues a huge problem for them, not just with the transfer fees, but their wages, which, of course, then goes all throughout the first of the club because now you've got the other top runners knocking on the door. Um, Barcelona haven't really been looking after their academy for a number of years. One or two young players on, on the door, young Fati looks like a fantastic young talent, but not the, not the types of talent that we saw coming through their academy before. It's going to be really, really interesting. You take a look at Real Madrid's midfield. You've got Casemiro, 28, Cruz, 30, Modric, 34. Luckily, they've got young Valverde coming through, but that's a midfield that needs money. Supposedly, they've told, uh, according to reports, Ajax, they don't have any money for Van der Beek, so, um, which hence the reason why they're probably trying to create interest with clubs like United. And bringing it back to Liverpool, look, Liverpool are a unique club in that, how they've built success really is tremendously admirable. They've built success by uh, not spending massive amounts of money, by making sure it's team built on no galacticos, work ethic, everyone working towards a particular goal, and very, very uh, a, a, a very specific type of player to fit a very specific type of system, almost very akin to what Ferguson did at United, where he made the team bigger than the sum of its parts based on being able to scare talent and them fitting a very, very rigid system and almost surgically bringing in players. So when last season, when they had this incredible season, I thought 
it's going to be really hard to bring in players to improve on that because they have to just be specific to fit a certain type of system. So you can understand them not spending big last summer, but I don't think they're going to get away with it this year. And it, it really causes them problems in a couple of areas. It causes them problems with Klopp because, I mean, how do you keep Klopp if you've got no money to spend? And what does it say to the likes of Musala? You know, I mean, okay, they're European champions, but they've just been knocked out of the Champions League. So that title will go. They'll probably win the league. You may get away with it for one year, saying to these boys, sit tight, we'll have money next year. But I don't think you get away with it for more than one year, Callum. And this is a situation where Liverpool, you know, this is when you don't spend at the top and strengthen at the top, this is how you get caught. That absolutely is. And the example I would use in that regard is Tottenham. Because one of the major things that Tottenham have been applauded for in recent years is you've kept your best players, you've constantly and consistently really given them, in, in some cases, like to Harry Kane, a few new contracts in the same season, um, which again, keeps him at the club, keeps him happy. Um, who knows what the financial incentives are in there, not for us to, to speculate, but they, they were applauded for doing that. But at the same time, you're now starting to see cracks slightly in Tottenham in the sense that Yes, Vertonghen and Alderweireld are two good, really, really top centre-backs, but they're a lot older now. So, although on paper you can say, oh, we've kept Vertonghen and Alderweireld, they aren't what they were three, four years ago, and that's where the potential for a rebuild is needed. But as you've said, and we both agree on this, when you give players lots of money and wages to stay at a club long-term, as we've seen with it, we've mentioned Coutinho, we've mentioned Sanchez, we've mentioned Dombele, it's hard to shift them if they start to go backwards or you want to refresh because it's easier said than done getting rid of these players as United and Barcelona have seen with Coutinho and Sanchez. Those players ordinarily would not be players you would loan out, but the clubs, because of the vast salaries they're on, have had no choice. So it will be very interesting to see how that develops. It will be really interesting to see how it develops. And as we said, I can't remember who it was we had on the show. I think we were asking Kieran Maguire, the price of football, about yeah. being a buyer's market this summer. If, you've got, if you're one of the few clubs with money, you'll be able to pick and choose who you can sign. So I think United will be fortunate in the sense that they can really be careful about what they do this summer. I would like to see United stick with the targets they picked and not decide to take advantage of the market because other players are available at a cheaper pro that, that otherwise would cost a fortune. I would like to see them say, look, we've, we've designated these players for a reason. Let's stay on course and perhaps get the players that they want cheaper than what um, they would have ordinarily been expected. For example, Jack Grealish. There's no way Jack Grealish is an £80 million player. No way. Absolutely no chance. I think at best, Van de Beek, who a young player who's already proven in the Champions League, you know, had a fantastic year for Ajax in the Champions League. If you're getting, if you're, if you're asking price, there's 40 million somewhere around there. Then I think you would have to put Grealish somewhere in that price back at night. If you look at what Barcelona spent on De Jong, for example, I wonder that they wish it waited a year because you'd be getting him at half the price now. Same with Juventus. You've seen Juventus put in a, a, a salary cap. I've no doubt that if they were offered Maybe 35 million for Ronaldo, they take it. You know, I, I, I have no doubt. I mean, the, the wages that he's on, um, he's not. You can just start to see the decline in Ronaldo start to happen now. Still one of the world's best football players, but just certain things in his game are just not the same. Um, 
magnificent, magnificent player. But um, you just feel like you may have squeezed. There's still some juice left to be squeezed out of Ronaldo, but you just wonder if it's worth it now with the money that they're spending on him. So I feel that there's going to be a lot of players available because a lot of clubs will have to sell. But, um, you know, even this changes Jaden Sancho's price because the market's what sets the price. You know, precedent, what did this guy go for? What did that guy go for? That's no longer the case. And I think if you're Leipzig and you, you've, I think you've done well getting 50 million for Timo Werner. I think um, there's very few clubs are going to be able to spend that money. So I think they've done well getting that type of money for Timo Werner. I think Inter have done well getting that type of money for Icardi. These, of course, Werner had his buyout clause. Icardi's price, I believe, was fixed on the loan. Yeah. So I think um, it's going to be really, really interesting to see what happens as we go forward. And Perhaps one positive will be clubs will be forced to give a lot of the young talent more of an opportunity and we'll see these academies being used more and almost the transfer window regulating itself, not because of any great uh, regulatory changes, but just simply because of financial necessity where we start to see young players being given a chance. I was talking to Michael Carrick on the show um, and he was talking about how United will be integrating some of their young players already training with the first team, already giving them a route into the first team. And I, I don't know about you, but uh, lots of other people have different opinions on this. But before I see my football club go out and spend massive amounts of money, I want to see them give a young player a chance from the academy. I do. I think that um, if a young player, I mean, in, our, in my position, my support United is Scott McTominay. If he comes in and has a, does fantastically well, I want him to be there over a big money signing. Some people the opposite. Um, but I want to see young players be given a chance. That's, this could be one positive dividend of that. Absolutely. And I think it's long overdue in, in certain clubs regards. Um, Chelsea, I think, are the prime example of mm-hmm. when, in a situation where you are forced to, to, to throw the kids in that it can have a positive impact. You look at the likes of Tomori, Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham. Mm-hmm. Those are players who, credit to Frank Lampard for giving them their opportunities However, if it was a normal market last season for Chelsea and they didn't have the ban, you might question whether they'd have got their opportunities. So Chelsea had an example, and whether I suppose. Frank Lampard would be there or not as well. Exactly. And as you say, it, Chelsea are a really, for me, an example of when you can't spend money, you are, in turn, your hand is, your hand is pushed to, to, to play the kids. And they've done, they've done very well, those players. In terms of the young player I want to see actually start playing football, is Phil Foden, and I'll tell you for why. Yes, same I think he's a, I think he's a talented kid. There's no disputing that he's got immense potential. However, he's been spoken about multiple times as if he's going to be this generational like talent, like Akai Havertz is. Mm-hmm. You compare those two players; the age difference isn't vast, but the experience is vast. The trust that they've had in putting them in a first team environment is vast, and for me. Foden needs to play games, and Manchester City, for me, have to either play him next season. This is the perfect opportunity because he cannot afford to constantly play 10, 15 games a season and expect to develop. I'm sorry, he just simply cannot. Well, I completely agree with that. Um, Guardiola's heap amazing praise on the kid, and I sometimes feel some of it is to keep him at City. Um, and look, there's lots of question marks here because if City get banned from the Champions League this season. There's a number of players in that City team have been hinting that they want to leave. De Bruyne being one of them. Um, David Silva 
has offered to extend his contract for a couple of months to the end of the season and then move Bispian. I think the natural feeling was Foden would take over from himself. And Foden is just a magnificent talent. But there is a difference between being a magnificent talent and a magnificent player. And the pressure of delivering every week, we've seen so many times, because the, the, the question mark between, and, and Guardiola knows this, of course, the difference between being Phil Foden and David Self is big. Okay? Phil Foden is a, is a superb young talent, but if he was German, he would have 100 games under his belt right now. Obviously, getting in the Leverkusen team is a bit different than getting in the Man City team. I get that. But um, the, the, this, is a, this is a young player, even if he was at United, would be on a whole different level. You, Phil Foden has big questions still to answer. I think he's turning 20. So this really is the time for him to play consistent games for Man City because he has to be looking at the likes of Jadon Sancho. He has to be looking at the likes of Rashford you know, or other young players, uh, even Mason Greenwood, for example, and saying these young players are well down the road. Jadon Sancho is miles ahead of Phil Foden right now. Phil Foden has to be saying to himself, look, has to be asking the same question. If I don't break into the City team this year, and play regular football and become a key player, which he may well do if, if the likes of De Bruyne and everything leave. Um, but it, it, then he has to leave. But the problem for City is it's a massive, massive gap between saying to Phil Foden, all right, son, you have very little Premier League experience. Now go in and be our Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, if Phil Foden can make a jump to be this magnificent young talent to Kevin De Bruyne, first of all, it's a massive ask of the young player, the young lad, then... You are talking about, for my money, a, a young player on, the, on a level of a Glenn Hoddle or something like that, where you're talking about a sensational young player, if he can make that jump that quickly. But like you said, talking about Kai Havertz, young players his age have already proven, you see it with Holland, that they're capable of delivering week in, week out, at a high level, at a high level. Phil Foden's yet to answer that question. Yes, and, and one thing I would, I would come in there, Phil, is to say, mm -hmm. In my opinion, City haven't utilised the loan market well enough because two two examples now. I know these two players are about to mention. People listening will say, "Ah, well, what did they didn't go on to achieve their potential?" And they didn't. But Daniel Sturridge and Jack Wilshere, when they were young kids, they went on loan to Bolton, who were in the Premier League at that time, and they got playing mm -hmm. time. They got experience of playing with senior pros in a Premier League level, which meant when they went back to their clubs, Arsenal and Chelsea, I believe at the time they were able to then make more of an impact than they would have if they were in Foden's position. Now, if you look at Guardiola's philosophy and being a technical-type manager, you look at, a, for me, you look at a club like Bournemouth, I know they're struggling this season. Mm -hmm. Could he have been placed there for two seasons to work under Eddie Howe, have two seasons of Premier League football under his belt, and then come back at 20 or 21 and say to Guardiola, right, I've been playing the Premier League for two years, week in, week out, I'm ready to step into this Manchester City mantle. Well, especially at a club like Bournemouth, it's not a bad thing that they're struggling because it teaches young players uh, character, it teaches them resolve, it teaches them the pressure. Playing, if you ask anyone who's played uh, uh, professional football, they'll tell you the jump between the Premier League and under-23 football is absolutely enormous, right? The pressure, you know, even, even beyond the actual game itself, the pressure of playing in a meaningful game that actually matters, which... You also get in the championship. You you have to deal with that pressure. You have to deal with the different type of. You, you're not coddled at these at these clubs. You're expected to contribute. There's a, you're asked. You're being asked different questions that you're not going to be asked at Man City on the fringes. 
Um, and that really is where development takes place because one, the one thing that you can't track with a young player that's not visible until they're in the situation is character. How do they deal with pressure? We've seen so many young players go to big clubs, get big massive moves and fail because they can't deal with the scrutiny and the pressure. If Phil Fulham went to someone like Bournemouth, which I think is a brilliant example, Eddie Hur, Eddie, 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 um, Eddie High plays football a certain way. It's very similar to Manchester City. I think that's a club that suit him. I wouldn't advise him to go to a club that plays long ball football, that he is going to be in a completely different system that's going to show, it's not going to show how he would play in a Man City system. I think a, a lung like that would do him the world of good. As I say, I think clubs uh, need to utilise the loan market. And as you'll know, having spoken to Darren McAntony in recent weeks, I think when football returns, this is Premier League clubs' opportunity to send young players out on loan, whether that's to fellow Premier League clubs, the Championship, League One, League Two, National League, whatever, you name it. I think clubs now can say to to these clubs in League One, look, you're going to struggle to bring in 18 senior pros the way you normally would for a season in the Championship or League One or League Two. We can loan you two of our young kids. We'll cover the majority of their wages, but we we, we want them to play. And I think in this current situation, a lot of clubs would do that because, one, it would save them money. Two, it would takes a bit of the pressure off in terms of the recruitment because you know as well as I do, although this is an unprecedented situation, in the UK especially, there's a yellow tie culture of transfers, transfers, transfers. As soon as the window opens, every club, whether you're Bournemouth, Bolton or Manchester United, are linked to about 100 players. And fans are still going to expect the incomings. And I think utilising the loan market for the bigger clubs could be the way to benefit the game as a whole for this year, maybe two years where finances are going to be very tight. I completely agree. What's really interesting about this, I've spoken to people who manage football clubs, own football clubs at lower league level. Some of the things they tell me about Premier League loans are truly unbelievable. In terms of, first of all, they get young players that come in with massive chips on their shoulders that aren't willing to do things. They 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 come in. They they aren't. You know they they've been coddled. They're used to exceptional facilities, and they come down and they aren't willing to do the things that are needed to do at that level to be successful. Also, the structure of these loans. First and foremost, what stunned me is that almost always I won't name the clubs. There's a couple of clubs in the Premier League that uh, say a League One club is inquired about. And Premier League club wants a loan fee for the player. They also cover 100% of the wages. And they also cover them through the summer. So if you loan a player and the season's over, and I know this is different, but typically, you know, the season's over in May, you have to pay that player through the end of August. Premier League are demanding this. Um, they, um, a League One club, for example, made an inquiry about loaning uh, top, four Premier League teams, third goalkeeper, who had never played a Premier League game in his life, who was 19, and they said, sure, no problems, you can have him, you have to pay his wages. He was on 30 grand a week. They, we cannot pay that. So unless Premier League clubs get real, then these deals won't happen. But then you can also see why clubs are getting into, into trouble. Why are you paying a third goalkeeper 30 grand a week this is sort of where I said with United on Angel Gomez and saying look if it's if it's the money if you want more than 30 grand a week son you're not worth 30 grand a week right now right you know you have to fulfill promise 
to earn that money. It doesn't come before you fulfill the promise. You know, and this is some, something similar to Phil Foden. The Angel Gomez was in the same England team as Phil Foden. He has to play football. And if you're not playing football, then you cannot be turning around and saying, pay me because I may be good. No, it doesn't work like that. You have to deliver first in, in any job. So, you know, yes, you may get a little bit more because you have potential. But unless Premier League clubs get real with this loan system, then I, uh, I, 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 I really worry because when you look at Chelsea, how many players have they stockpiled? I mean, that is completely untenable. And so uh, these are the things that have to change. And I hope the Premier League and other leagues around the world use this as an opportunity to have new regulations that say the other thing, of course, is going to change is you're going to see five substitutes in the Premier League, which is going to be interesting. But I would like... I, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a supporter of that, by the way. I'm not sure how you feel about that with five supporter, five, five substitutes. How do you feel about that? For the current time being, it's something I agree with. Long term, I would have to be convinced because the only thing that frustrates me potentially with that is, you know what it's like in a sort of pre-season friendly type match when if you were to make four subs in the one go, it just it's tedious waiting on players to come on and you could easily waste even more time towards the end of a game. If you've only used one sub, as some people do already, imagine you're getting to the 85th minute in a big game, just put somebody on the 86th, the 88th, and, and I don't know how you would get around that. But okay. for the time being, it's sensible. It's definitely sensible. On that, I would put in a law that says, if you make a sub, we add on a mandatory one minute, right? For every sub, mandatory. Right. So if you say if you want to do one, we there'll be I understand about disrupting the flow of the game, everything, right? But here's where I feel clubs are unfairly punished. Let's say, for example, you've made three subs, right? And you're it's the eighty-eighth minute in the Champions League final, say, right? And your player gets absolutely clattered by someone. Their player gets red carded and your player gets carried off. You're both down to 10 men. Surely you should be allowed in that situation to not be at a disadvantage and bring a player on. That is to me wrong because I think that if, you, you're down, if you've made three subs and your player gets clattered by someone, maybe they'll get carried off your bad injury, he'll get sent off. You're, you're, you're not at an advantage and they're not at a disadvantage. That to me is wrong. And so... I do think there should be situations that allow for another player. I know that people will argue, yeah, but people take advantage of that. Players will play, will pretend they're injured and everything, and I accept that. But I still feel you should not be at a disadvantage in a situation like that. And uh, I'm okay with five subs. I, I, I don't have a problem with it. But um, just to bring it back to what we're talking about, I do hope we see young players uh, being left at clubs a lot longer so that they can develop rather than being stocked by the Premier League clubs. And lastly, I would bring in really, really strict regulation about academies being depraved of young players at 16, 17. We've seen it happen. Um, I think Billy Gilmore, he, he got taken from um, from Scotland, wasn't he? He brought down to Chelsea. and uh, He came down from Rangers and yeah. um, on, on Billy Gilmore. There was lots of people, as you know, with the way these things work with kids that were sceptical. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> when Billy came down to Chelsea, people said, um, making the wrong move, it's all money-orientated. But to be fair to the kid, he's, he's doing really well. And you hope that he can be a shining light for, for the other kids. And 
One of the idiosyncrasies of this summer I want to just talk about briefly before we move on is the idea of players that were potentially going to be surplus. And now it's going to be interesting to see if clubs have a different feeling about it. Some of the players I can just list here, Dries Mertens, Edson Cavani, um, Chiellini, Vertonghen, Callaghan, um, Pizcek, we know Mario Goats is going to be moving on, Pedro, Ryan Fraser, um, Thiago Silva, Thomas Mooney and Willian, right? Those are major players that are their contracts expire at the end of the season. It will be interesting, I think, now to see if clubs think, right, we wanted rid of him to bring in someone else, but we might even just offer him a one-year deal to, to stay. How do you think that situation will go with free agents? Well, it, definitely. But then you've got the other side of this, that a lot of those players you've listed are going to be on massive amounts of money. Yep. You know, so... Um, I would imagine Thiago Silva is going to be one of PS, PSV's or PSG's biggest earners. I would imagine Cavani, all these players. Um, and to be fair, I think that Cavani isn't moving for money. He wants to go back to Uruguay, if I understand. It will, will be interesting. Of course, they're going to want to ask these players to stay a season longer because it's going to be extremely limited to what they can do in the market. But again, this is where the importance of planning comes in. I would like to believe that the clubs that are letting these players go have already planned on the replacement, whether it's academy player or whether it's someone already signed. Um, I don't know, but uh, I, 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 of course, play, uh, teams that are letting players go would will, will, will just like we talked about with David Silva, uh, will be looking for them to stay on for a little bit longer. But when we talk about the financial reality, Calum, it's not just signings; it's wages. Like we've talked about with Barcelona, they may have no choice but to let them go. So. I think what we could see, one of the things that I've really lamented over the years, and one of the reasons why I really enjoyed Ajax doing so well in the Champions League, is we really started to see European football become predictable, and that it was the same two or three teams, pretty much within a small group of teams, that were dominating the Champions League every year. Now we might see a little bit more parity. Now we might see some other teams that are well-managed, that aren't spending massive amounts of money, that have good academy players mixed with other good uh, sensible signings. We may see some restoration of uh, what we saw before in the 80s where Portuguese teams, where other teams not outside the top the top three leagues may be uh, a par again because you know top clubs can't spend the way they once could. Absolutely. It's going to be fascinating to see how, how it pans out. And another point to add on young players coming through. Now, Gianni Infantino has said he would like a salary cap to come in place. Obviously, he's a FIFA president um, post-COVID. However, Kieran Maguire was talking about this actually this morning. For instance, say you put a salary cap in League One, a team like Sunderland could be in massive trouble. Sunderland's wage bill is, is I think, something, something like... I'm sure he was saying it was, it was over £10 million per season anyway. Now, that's streets ahead of, of the other clubs in that division. Mm-hmm. So you just think to yourself, if a salary cap comes in, would it be brought in in a, a tapered way that would allow clubs like Sunderland to maybe have a year to get their books in order? And, you and would have to do that. that way, yeah. Because um, if not, clubs could, be, could, clubs could be in trouble. And the other thing that intrigues me about this situation with football resuming in the Bundesliga and the Premier League is, and we've seen this in the English Championship, it's a player called Lyle Taylor. His manager went on Sky Sports and said he's refusing to play. I'm sure that went down well with the player and the fans. Um, because he's he basically, his he's contract's up in the summer. He's 30 years old. 
and he's in line for a big move. He's speculated um, to be potentially going to either Rangers or Celtic. There's a few Premier League clubs interested in him as well. That's a situation and a scenario that we may see as the Premier League comes back. Mm. There are tons of players that I've mentioned there. I know Adam Lallana's out of contract. Whether he would get in the squad, I don't know. That might be nervous about playing in these last few games that could be dead robbers for some clubs because it could cost them the next move. Listen, it, this is if you don't if these players are not under contract, um, well, then they, they have no choice. They, 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 even if it's the last couple of weeks of their contract, it's going to get really tricky because even if you're still on the last couple of weeks of your contract, you're still on their contract. right? Now you can refuse to play. Uh, there's really little the club can do other than fine you, of course, the last couple of weeks' wages. Um, it's a massive sacrifice for players to do that, to ruin a legacy at a particular club. Um, now, I can see it happening at lower league level because there's so much on the line. But if the likes of Adam Milana, who's made a lot of money in football, who um, isn't going to want to ruin a legacy at Liverpool, uh, and really isn't, unless, I mean, I, I don't see players take this risk all the time in international duty, what have you. I can certainly understand players who haven't made a lot of money in the game not wanting to take that risk. But if you're a top player, I don't really think you, that that's reasonable. I don't think they should they should be doing that because they've made enough money. The risk is not the same for them. And uh, I don't think, I think if you've been exceptionally well compensated and looked after by a football club, then I think you take the risk and play the game. Um, but uh, I, I really don't see it happening because uh, I think... Um, I mean, if you're if you're Adam Lallana and you refuse to play in two or three games for Liverpool because of this, his his legacy would be forever ruined. Is it really worth it? But it could happen. But certainly, someone like Lyle Taylor or something, where you haven't made massive amounts of money in a game, there's huge risk involved for you. And one of the things that we have seen is players coming back, the susceptibility, and we talked about this last week, of course, on the show of non-impact injuries that that are that are very likely because of, of muscle atrophy and other things that have happened through not training and you can never replicate a game in training. So it is going to be interesting. And I, I think um, there's a statistic in the Bundesliga about high injuries are in significantly increased over the last few weeks because of this. And I've spoken to other people in other sports about this very thing, training athletes and getting them back to peak performance and how long it takes if they've been out for a significant period of time, which their bodies are not used to. The, the, the risk of injury significantly increases, but I can only see this being an issue for clubs, for players at smaller clubs making a big move rather than the other way around. Absolutely, and and that brings us on to our next topic, which is the return of the Premier League. How are you feeling about the Premier League return? You know, my feeling on this has evolved. In the beginning, I felt when this virus was new and our TVs were filled every day with the, the death toll, with... Um, with coffins and the tragedy of it, uh, I couldn't see any way football could return without a vaccine. I just felt it was totally unfair. But I think with the new round of testing where we've had no positive tests, which is truly fantastic, um, I think we're probably at the best point we're going to get where we can resume without safely without a virus, or without a vaccine, sorry. So I have evolved on it to say, look, I'm okay with it, but I'm certainly okay with players saying, you know what, I don't feel safe, I don't want to do it. 
um, which really, you know, when we talk about players refusing to play, that to me would be a bigger issue than the contractual situation of players saying, I've got a father at home or a child at home, and no player should be criticised or judged if they don't want to return. I think they should be respected. But um, I'm okay. I think, you know, at some point, vaccines are not guaranteed. We may never get one. So do we never play again? I think all we can really do is be is do what we're doing right now. And I think, yes, I'm okay with returning. In terms of the return, in terms of the title, Liverpool will win the title, top sure. four. You could say he's a shootout between Chelsea, United, Leicester, Sheffield United and Wolves might fancy mm-hmm. themselves if they've prepared well enough to go on a run. You never know. But that's been talked about quite a lot recently. I want to focus on relegation because... I'm actually really concerned for a lot of the clubs down there, and I'll tell you why. Bournemouth have a capacity of about 11,000, 12,000. Now, they are heavily reliant on TV money as it is. I know they have an owner who's very wealthy. If they go down to the championship, in the current situation, I would be really concerned if I was a Bournemouth fan. Um, They would need their owner to to step in and, and, and cover the, the cost of going down. But then again, with FFP, you need to raise your own money, so you can't just rely on the owner. West Ham, another club that I'm concerned about if they go down. The fans are disillusioned with the move to the Olympic Stadium, or the London Stadium, I should say, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a stadium that journalists um, and commentators alike have said you're far too... You're too far away from the pitch. It's not the best place to watch football. Yeah. And I said this to John Cross from the Mirror last week when I was speaking to him on CFB. Could you imagine that stadium in the championship? Could, honestly, could, could you imagine West Ham hosting, let me think, a team like Rotherham or Burton Albion if they were still in that division at the, the London Stadium on a Tuesday night? The place would be empty. Yeah, well, look, here's the thing. <laughs> Football clubs need to be... Uh, West Ham, it's not the first time West Ham have been in a precarious financial situation. I think it was about 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, when they were bought by the Biscuit Man from Iceland. Um, and um, they almost became insolvent. So they need to run these football clubs. I, I, I understand it's very, very difficult to, um, to run a football club and anticipate the impact of a virus. But you always have to be conscious of the possibility of relegation, especially a club like West Ham. If you're not looking at relegation and thinking it's a very distinct possibility, then you are not running your football club with any degree of uh, of proper financial oversight. So, yes, they they shouldn't have moved that stadium in the first place, in my opinion. Uh, It's not a football stadium. It's an athletic stadium. They tried to take away the trace track. I remember speaking to David Gold on BTP the year before they moved into that stadium. He was very, very excited about everything that they were going to do. And we asked him about the conversion from athletics into a football stadium. Uh, and he felt that it would be no problems, that it would be, they'd easily make those adjustments into a football stadium, but it has never quite happened. And, you know, this is, this is where I question a lot of clubs. I understand they want to modernize stadiums, but some of these older stadiums that, you know, like... <clears throat> the bowling ground, they have a lot of history and a lot of tradition. And if you remember that old West Ham ground, the, the, the fans were on top of you. Yep. And the, the, right behind the goal, the fans were right there. It was an intimidating stadium. West, that, was a, that was worth, to me, at least to nine, nine to 12 points a season for West Ham. Now that almost in between, they're sort of in between a big club and a small club. And 
they're trying to retain the traditions of bringing through academy players and being a, being you know this old traditional English football club. But uh, if you look at a lot of their signings, they don't make sense to me. I mean, they're not young signings that you can develop and sell. A lot of them are players that have been moved all over the place. Uh, and you know, to me, I, I don't understand what they're trying to do with that football club. I don't have it. It doesn't have any identity to me. It's just a football club that looks happy to stay in the, in, in the league. And when you have that, it's very, very easy. I, I, I don't see it's a football club that has investments trying to finish the top four. I don't see it in the football club that's trying to finish the top half of the table. It looks like a club that here they're back to David Moyes. No ambition. Um, no... Uh, they're very little, uh, uh, no original thought in there, and I just don't know what they're trying to do. That I agree with you, but it's a football club that could easily find itself financially because there's not a lot you can sell there that can mitigate loss. Even Declan Rice, I mean, Declan Rice for me is a decent, very, I don't think he's a top young player, I think he's a good young player. And I still think if you were to sell Declan Rice, what are you going to get from 40 million right now in this market? Outside of that, how many other players do they have worked that would bring them big money? Absolutely. And before we move on, our, our guest, Aaron Barton um, of Proxima, um, Jornada, is set to join us to talk Portuguese football. Before he joins us, going to put you in the spot, Phil, and I'm happy to be on the spot here with us too. Who finishes top four out of Chelsea, United, Leicester, Wolves, Sheffield United, pick two of um, Obviously, the top two are settled. Uh, I think United will sneak top four because I genuinely believe they've improved a lot and I think Bruno Fernandes has changed. Um, I really... You know, who's the other ones? United, Chelsea? Sheffield Leicester, United. Wolves, Sheffield United. I think Chelsea and United. I think it'll be Liverpool City, Chelsea and United. I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you on United. I think United are stronger than Chelsea and they will be in the front end. However, there's been a lot of chat about Leicester slipping out but I just don't see it. I think Brendan in Brendan Rodgers, they've got a fantastic coach. I think they've got a good group of players. They're sitting in third at the moment. Now a lot of people are predicting them to maybe slide out. Now they might, the momentum may have been cut. But I think Leicester are a team who, post-COVID, if they can keep their talents, could be in a good position to compete. I think that actually the coronavirus could help them because some of their players are no longer guaranteed to leave. And I think you'll get a renewed focus from the likes of Madison, what have you, who prior to this coronavirus, some of them would have had their heads elsewhere. Absolutely. They're, I can definitely see them uh, refocusing. So, But I, I still think the big boys will get it done. We shall see. Delighted to say that we are joined on the show by Aaron Barton, who runs Proxima Jornada, which is a Portuguese football website. He covers Portuguese football in English. And he's recently been nominated as the best new content creator at the Football Content Awards. So, first of all, Aaron, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, lads. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, the Football Content Awards have been nominated as one of eight finalists. So, you know, really excited about that. Hopefully, I can I can bring that trophy home. Congratulations, uh, mate. That's class. Thanks very much. Everyone at BTP, we wish you all the best with that. Fingers crossed. And. We've got you on. There's a few controversial incidents that have happened in Portuguese football. Before we go into those, the, 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 the football's came back. I know how excited you are about it. We spoke several weeks ago about the return um, coming. However, Porto lost. Benfica drew, as did Sporting. Just describe the, the comeback, because normally you'd expect at least one of those clubs to win. 
yeah, it was it was bizarre, really. It was, it was very bizarre. And then add to that, you've got your Ostris Grands, the the big three. On top of that, Braga uh, didn't win either. They got they lost. So it was it was it was a strange week, really. I I was doing a bit of digging, and the last time that happened was was right at the start of last season. And the last time that it happened with those clubs not directly playing each other was was years ago. I can't remember the, the specific year. So it was it was very strange really, but it was it was great to to just be watching all of the matches, not just those involving those big sides. There was lots of end to end games, lots of entertainment and as you know, Callum, I was uh, very excited to have the football back. <laughs> There was a bit of an incident uh, um, with uh, Julian Vega and Zivkovic with the Benfica fans. Uh, it seems like they uh, they were attacked by their own fans. What happened there? So, basically, a couple of days earlier, on, on the Wednesday, FC Porto played against Familicao and obviously lost. And so, going into the SL Benfica game against Dondela, they knew going into that game if they, if they won, it'd put a little bit of a buffer between themselves and FC Porto at the top. Obviously, the game hasn't went to plan. Tondela are a, a bottom half team, a struggling team. And obviously, they've came out with with a draw. Fans weren't happy. They've went joint top, which might seem bizarre to some people listening that a team joint top of the league, the fans can be so outraged, but obviously not happy with the performance. The, the bus has left uh, the stadium and is heading back to the training ground. And it's been attacked by projectiles, so bricks and stones. They've smashed through the bus, and then apparently one of the shards of glass has, has, has cut Julian Weigel in the face. And obviously Andrei Zivkovic has, has caught some, some shrapnel as well. And then when they got to the training ground, they've been assessed by the, the medical professionals, and and they're, they're fine, but... Yeah, that that was the start of the attacks, and then also there was graffiti attacks as well, where uh, a number of houses were targeted. So uh, Rafa Silva, uh, Pizzi, Bruno Lage, the manager, all had their their houses or the 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 walls outside their houses defaced with with some 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 yeah some pretty offensive graffiti. I, I won't repeat what it says, but <laughs> yes, it's not 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 too nice and. Yeah, it was a, it was a shame, really, not just for the players, but also, you know, for the for the sport itself. We've been looking forward to the return for so long, and something like this happens, and and obviously that's what makes the the European press, the European media. That's what you see on on all of the headlines. It's it's, it's not the highlights of the games. It's you know, it's these ugly incidents. In terms of these ugly incidents, I mean. The, obviously, nobody can can agree with those actions. Um, attacking a team bus or defacing people's homes and personal property. We're all passionate about football, but that's a step too far. Um, in terms of the pressure on those clubs in Benfica and Porto, I mean, we're 25 games in. There's still a, a decent chunk of the season left to go. And this is the reaction of fans when, as you said, Benfica fans thought they could create a buffer. And this is the reaction when they don't do that. How tense is this going to be in the next few weeks? Because it seems to, well, I say it seems, it has boiled over. It'll be very tense, to be honest. And, and I think, to be honest, I think even myself using the word fans or supporters, however I refer to them, I think I'm, I'm discrediting the actual, the majority of, of the fan base of these clubs because these people aren't supporters and they're not, 
they're not fans either. I I, I posted a couple of hours ago a, a roundup of of the genre of of the week, and I said you know t- to give them that title discredits the actual supporters that no matter how frustrated they may be with the results they you know th- these actions don't boil over into into mindless violence so i think thugs would be would be a better way to refer to them like you say Callum it, it's it's already started to boil over the club have came out and put a statement out and said that the they are pursuing the the individuals responsible and that they'll be they'll take the appropriate action which I assume will be you know a lifetime stadium ban if if the right people are apprehended but I just think it's so tense at the top that this is this is sometimes the reaction it's it's you know it's it's not great and it's like I say I was just disappointed that it reared its 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 ugly head to be honest when it felt like a lot of Europe's eyes were on the Premier League and especially in the UK with the TV rights on free sports. I know a lot of people were, were following me on Twitter and, and direct messaging and, and just trying to get a bit more insight into the league and then and then something like this happens. But we'll we'll just have to see how it plays out in the next couple of weeks. I think I'm unsure what's going to go on with this with the security measures and but like I say, the, these thugs, um it's happened before. No doubt it'll happen again. It's just trying to find a way of, of of trying to prevent these incidents from occurring. How you do that, I'm not too sure, to be honest. Yeah, it's it something... seems so ingrained. Sorry, go on, Phil. No, I was just going to say, I mean, unfortunately, it's something that happens all over the world. It's not unique to Portugal. and uh, Disappointing. I'm, I'm out here in LA, and, uh, which out my window right now is, uh, is more than disappointing. So um, I know exactly how you feel when the spotlight's put on and you're let down. This, obviously, the coronavirus, uh, Aaron, is the fact that everyone across Europe, you see Barcelona having to take as much as 70% pay cuts. How are Portuguese clubs fixed to deal with the new financial reality that's going to hit football? And does that mean that uh, we're going to see more young Portuguese talents being sold off this summer? Potentially, yes. I think the, the financial disparity between those clubs at the top and those clubs at the bottom has always been there pre, pre-COVID. And in a way, because the you know the country hasn't been too affected by the TV rights deal because it doesn't have that big of a TV TV rights package. I noticed there was there was lots of, of uproar in France about the money that was going to be paid out and, and certain channels not paying for games that hadn't been hadn't been played out or whatever. Whereas the TV rights issue in Portugal has sort of just remained as it is. So that's that's fine for now. And in terms of just getting those games played, I think I, I put a preview out on the Twitter and I said, look, it's without fans, it's not ideal. But I think the main thing for these clubs was that they got these TV this these TV right financial boosts. Now the games obviously would have had to go ahead to do that. And for the financial stability of these clubs, it, it just sort of had to go ahead. And I know a lot lots of the the clacks, the the ultra groups in Portugal weren't too happy about the idea of football without fans, but it's 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 necessary. I think in terms of, of going forward, even those those top three clubs before coronavirus, especially FC Porto, are in the dire straits financially. Uh, and and I think if coronavirus does have an effect, it's only going to make things make things worse. They it's been known for, for the past couple of months 
they're going to have to have some sort of fire sale when it comes to the transfer window. Coronavirus, how how will that affect it? Well, transfer fees we're now seeing the transfer fees seem to have came came down because clubs aren't as you know as flush for cash. So will we see a couple of uh, a couple of top talents? Alex Tellis has been has been rumored to to Chelsea and Paris Saint Germain numerous times. Jesus Corona, we're starting to see lots of players now being rumored for moves way below their value. How that'll affect the Portuguese teams, it'll be you know hugely detrimental. But needs must the clubs have to stay afloat. The clubs have to stay afloat absolutely across all levels of the game and something that. But pre-COVID, um, pre-lockdown was affecting uh, the big three in Benfica, Porto and Sporting was the Portuguese tax officials raiding their offices. I mean, can you just describe what you understand from that situation? Because at the best of times, the tax authorities coming to investigate you, uh, it's, not, it's not a good sign, as Harry Redknapp's dog will <laughs> testify to. But uh, um, just describe that situation. Right, so the, the the funnily enough named operation is the offside operation. <laughs> so they must have been a, a a comedian at the tax at the tax authority when that was uh, when that was built. <laughs> Basically, it's it goes back to two thousand and fifteen, around two thousand and fourteen, fifteen, and it they apparently have had several sources that certain taxes have been averted, shall we say that following transfer dealings and, and the general the general everyday running of the club, certain taxes were not being paid to, to the relevant authorities. So I think at the start of March, you had Benfica, Sporting and FC Porto were all raided, as well as houses, I think, and offices of, of several high-ranking people in Portugal to do with Portuguese football. Just to go through paperwork and try and find a paper trail and a trace, and make sure that these high-profile officers are, are running a tight ship. And there hasn't been anything that's come back from that since since them, those initial raids. But I think it was more of a it was a, a sign of authority, really. It was a it was a it was a power sign that we're going to raid them all. We're going to do it all, you know, pretty much on the same day, if not a day or two apart. The three big clubs, almost as a, as if to say, we've got our eye on you. Even if we don't find anything this time, this is a little bit of a warning shot. Uh, in terms of the, the the more detailed financial aspect of what of what they were looking for, I'm not too sure. the The publications only published that it was it was a tax. Whether any was found, I'm I'm not too sure. But yeah, I think in a country like Portugal, where like I mentioned before, the financial disparity between those three clubs, the gap, the wealth gap, is 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 if we've we will obviously have a lot of listeners from from England and and people who are fans of La Liga and even Serie A, those countries do not even bear in comparison to the to the gap in Portugal between the top and the bottom clubs. It's it's, it's so wide. So it's no surprise that it was those top three clubs that were raided and and, and no others. And obviously, always uh, eyes on the Portuguese league. That's a tremendous producer of young talent and sending young talent from South America, developing it and selling it on. If you were to highlight maybe five top young talents from the Portuguese league that could be on their way this summer, uh, who would you pick out? Who would I pick out? Well, the first one I'm going to go with is Florentino Luis. 
who yeah. is a he's a central midfielder for SL Benfica. Now, this one has been a bit of a mystery, both to me, to to those in Portugal, to those that are attached to to Benfica. I've got friends and people online that, that are you know socials see, see season ticket holders at, at Benfica, and they don't understand what's going on with with Tino with Florentino. He's not playing. He's not being picked. He's not being selected. He's he's not making the match day squads. Yet he's got all the potential in the world to be whatever he wants to be. Now I I put out a, a piece the other day, and I said, you've got all these clubs in England. You've AC Milan, Italian clubs. He was a couple of yeah. He was a couple of English clubs interested in as well. So the teams like every club in Europe is interested in Florentino Luis, except for Benfica. His his club, they they seem to be the only club who aren't interested in him, and and whether it's off field issues or whether it's it's to do with contractual issues. Sometimes when when finances get involved and agents get involved, sometimes the club will turn around and say, you know, look, you're training, you you are. I'd say training with the kids. He is a kid, but he should be playing in that first team. That there's no doubt about it, and I think. Manchester United were the were the latest club to be linked with them. Now, is a club is a move to a club like that maybe a, a step too big at this point? I'm always tempted to say yes because I like to see these Portuguese players take what I would call a middle step. Mm-hmm. So, although SL Benfica are a massive club and everybody knows that they you know great European heritage and they dominate the league over there as well as FC Porto. Yet, I'd like to see. And move to that mid-level club before maybe jumping onto that that real upper echelon of clubs. So if you look at someone like Bernardo Silva, he didn't go straight from from SL Benfica to Manchester City, and who knows how he would have got on if he did do that. But he he went to AS Monaco in in Ligue 1 and played with with a great squad, played in the Champions League, developed, and then when the time was right, then moved on to to Manchester City. So will we see a move on this year? I think it's it's more than likely, yeah. It's definitely more than likely. Now, a player, another one I touched on before, not a young player, but I think a player that we will see move is, is Alex Tellis. Now, a lot of people will have saw YouTube highlights and and clips of his goals and stuff, but not really got the gist of, of, of just how good he is. Now, he is a very, very, very good player. He, he is the real deal. Uh, I've noticed that Chelsea have been keenly interested in him, as well as uh, Ben Chilwell and, and Nico Tagufico. Now, mm-hmm. my understanding is, from what I'm hearing, is that Telesh isn't the first choice. He's more of a, a backup op- option. But the fee that's being rumoured for him is around £23 million. Now, I cannot stress enough how much of a bargain that is for a player that's played you know, across the world. He's he's played in Italy. He's you know he's played in his in his home country. He's played in Portugal, and at 27 years age, I think he's definitely definitely ready for that step up, that move up. A fair player. Who? Let me see. See, I'm tempted to. What about Ruben Diaz? See, where is he ready for a move to top club? I say yes, I say yes, and thing is with with Ruben Diaz is is he's coming along nicely at the minute at Benfica, 
whether this this is the season for him to move on or whether he should stay in Portugal for another year, I'm, I'm not to say. But he, he is a highly touted player. He is Portugal's next next centre back for the next however many years. He is he is the Pepe replacement. Uh, the big question at the minute is who's going to partner him in those coming years, which I, I'll come on to another player shortly. So, you know, he, he, he is the main man. And at the minute at Benfica, he's, he's took on a lot of responsibility on those young shoulders. Again, Manchester United. Seems like every player in, in Liga Nosh has been linked to Manchester United yeah. sometime or another, especially given the, the success of uh, Bruno Fernandes in, in yeah. recent times. So, I think the, the the thing is with with him is one Benfica will will not want to sell. Obviously, clubs in Portugal have got less less negotiating bidding power when it comes to their top talents. There's someone like Ruben Dias who's pretty much there or thereabouts. What Benfica would consider the finished article or, or near near to the finished article, they're going to want top dollar for him. Now that brings me on nicely to. A player who was his partner last season in Ferro. Now he, as another central defender, he's been linked with multiple Premier League clubs. He was linked with Everton in January. Now apparently, Everton were were interested in him, and he was you know he was playing well. And then after January, he sort of dipped off a little bit. Nobody really knows why. Apparently, he was carrying an injury. Well, he's he's the more raw of the two. He's 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 not as yet developed. Therefore, you might be able to get him at a, at a cheaper price. The talent is is there. Lots of people are saying he is he can be that partner for for Ruben Dias in the in the next couple of years. So be interesting that one. So remember that name, Ferro. He he's yet to make a he's yet to make a senior appearance for the Portugal national team, but definitely. Uh, going to be a move in the next couple of seasons and then I'm going to stay on the theme of defenders because another defender that just hasn't got game time, a younger defender is Diogo Leite who plays mm. for FC Porto. Now he was, when FC Porto won the UEFA Youth Champions League, he was instrumental in that, He was. I watched that entire tournament, he was He was just perfect, him and Diogo Guedes at the back now the big concern, the big problem with FC Porto at the minute is their manager, Sergio Conceição, has not been playing the youth players. And that's led to a bit of discontent that lots of these young players who are supposed to be this next generation of FC Porto players may be playing in their first team for the next two, three years, then making that big move. Lots of those players are, are sort of, you know, we're not getting chances. So we might see these players leave a little bit earlier. This is like what I was saying about Bernardo Silva before. I won't Sometimes, be playing them, Aaron. I think the problem with with especially Benfica and FC Porto, not so much Sporting, or FC Porto and SL Benfica, is look at how we opened up this conversation with the bus attack. Yeah. That was because Benfica drew nil nil, yeah. but they joined top of the league. So I think the fear for both Conceição and Bruno Lage is sure. if we put in these kids, these these highly highly rated, highly touted players, and they make mistakes or they prove that they're not ready. One, the manager comes under fire. And two, if they're not getting the results, there's a chance they won't win the league. Now, not winning the league for either of those teams is catastrophic. So if it was a team like, say, uh, SC Braga this season, 
So uh, myself and Callum, we've spoke about uh, Trincao before, the one who's he's moved to, yeah. to FC Barcelona. Now it's easy, yeah, it's easier for Braga to give someone like him a go and say, go out and play football, make your mistakes, uh, because there's no pressure to, to, to win the title. So he can go out and he can learn and he can develop. Whereas these players in, in, in the FC Porto and the SL Benfica set up are sort of in the background and, and there's trusted veteran professionals that are being put in ahead of them. So you look at the FC Porto side, you've got Ivan Marcano, who they signed back from uh, Stroma and Pepe. So that that combined centre-half pair, and I don't know, it's probably about 60-odd years of age. Right. Whereas... <laughs> whereas you you could you, they could they could put Diogo Lita in there with with a Pepe to learn off or with a Marcano, but it seems like the responsibility, the risk and the reward is just is 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 too much. And I think if they're in such a good position, I think it'd be different if Benfica were nine points ahead or ten points ahead, or it was an unattainable lead. And Contessao could think, right, well, we've got nothing to lose. We're probably still going to finish second. We're better. We're a lot better than the teams around us, third, fourth, and fifth. We might not be as good as Benfica. Let's put the kids in, see how they get on. But I think the stakes are just too high at the minute, to be honest, Phil, which is a shame, really. Oh, I do completely. It's a shame, because you see, with like, Joao Felix, you see these amazing young talents when they get a break. Um, you know, they, mm-hmm. they it's so important for the financial stability of these football clubs. And, of course, we get to see the benefit of these young players moving to Europe. But, uh, Calm, you got anything else, mate? Very quickly, before you go, the Premier League is back. How impressed have you been with Bruno Fernandes in the Premier League? Because you were incredibly impressed with him in Portugal, but the impact he's had on the United side. Phil, Phil smiling there. That's the most Phil's, Phil smiled in about two months. Um, what a player he is. You're asking a kid Fantastic. from Liverpool to talk about a player for United. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Portuguese journalist first and foremost, Phil. So entirely, entirely impartial. You know me. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm Everton anyway. I'm not Liverpool. Yeah, so so yeah. <laughs> um, no, he's been he's been phenomenal. Phenomenal. I've I've you know I, I've made a, a keen effort to watch every United game that he's been involved with in across all competitions, and I think. I put out a piece when he was he was nominated in that you know that BBC team that got lots of criticism the team in the season so far they dubbed it and they put him in despite only playing you know a handful of games I think he's five games in the Premier League mm-hmm. and I I I put out a, a piece and I said first of all don't you know don't don't get riled up by by something that's voted by fans because first and foremost if there's more fans for a club voting for a player then he's going to get in. Right. Second of all, think about your frustration of why Bruno Fernandes got in and then actually look what he's offered to that United team. I'm not saying that he deserves to be in the team of the season so far, but what I see, what I witnessed when he came in is that United looked hungrier for the ball. They were moving up the pitch a lot better. They had just the, the trajectory when, when he arrived. It, it felt like, not just him on his own, but he started to make the players around him better. Not just through his talent alone, but maybe just that belief. He's a captain. He's wore the armband for sporting before. He's a leader. He might be this, you know, technically gifted, crafty centre mid, but he's got he's got a bit of grit about him. He's got that that fire in his belly, and and I think he'll have went in there to United and said, "Look, we've got a good we've got a good crop of players here." 
talented group, yet sometimes we're on the half turn in the middle of the pitch and we're scared to play the forward balls, whether it's it's the pressure mm-hmm. or whatever. But the thing is with, with Bruno is is he's never been afraid of, of passing accuracy stats and and being if you look at his actual statistics, you'll go, Well he you know, he lost the ball eighteen times and he, he's got a seventy one percent pass accuracy. But that's because he's playing constantly these these eye of the needle passes. He's trying to play people in. He could turn and play back to, to the fullback. He could turn and play to Luke Shaw. And he could have that 90, 92% pass accuracy. That's not his game. His game is give me the ball, let me get us up the pitch. Now, the one thing I'm most excited about is is obviously what everyone's looking forward to is seeing him and, and Paul Pogba in the midfield and yeah. seeing how that works. And they, I know United have been feeding into it as well. They've posted quite a few training pictures of those two together and little passing drills and shooting drills. I think people just cannot wait to see a rejuvenated midfield with, with Pogba in. And that rejuvenation started, like I say, pre-COVID is, is Bruno coming in and, and demonstrating why why he was so touted, why he's so highly rated. No, I, I had Michael Carrick on the show last week and was he was talking about the very same thing. He was just saying about how much he's been allocated and giving them tactical, tactical diversity so that they're not hitting just on the counter-attack and uh, also what he's brought to the dressing room as well. So he echoes that. Um, Aaron, I, first time I've had an opportunity to speak to you, mate. Absolutely first-class stuff. I'd love to get you back on again. And I know I speak for Callum as well. Excellent analysis, mate. And uh, I'm glad I came across you. First-class stuff, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Phil. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Callum. Not a problem. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Thanks very much, boys. All the best, mate. See ya. Cheers. See you later. Okay. Okay. There we go. All right. So, do you want to finish it up, mate? And let's just a couple of minutes wrap it up and be done. Um, Yep, that's fine. What we'll do is, you know what to do. Um, We'll have the cloth thing as well, don't we? Yeah, let's just. um, There was a lot of debate on that. Just. Just as I say, devil's advocate. I've not really no, no, got I, those, opinion, are, those, are, those are definitely fun things. And um, just just a, a quick wee wrap up on what he on what Aaron said. Lovely kid, by the way. What a really nice lad he is. Um, so we'll just do a quick wee two side two. One He's minute actually. Wrap do up. you know? Do you know the scary thing about him? He's twenty four. I'm twenty four. He's a primary school teacher who set this up because he wants to work in sports. It's bizarre. Mate, I'm telling you, he, he's a very talented young boy. Very, very talented young lad. Really, really nice kid. Very, very well-spoken. Uh, he's someone that uh, could go very, very far. And I love seeing young lads like that get a break. And um, That's know, why, as I said to you, I was desperate to get him on. Oh, he's no, a, he's a really nice guy. kid. So, uh, all right, you wanna, wanna, let's bring it back in and we'll, uh, we'll uh, um, just do a quick analysis on what he said. So, ready to go? Yep. Okay, I'm going to bring it back in. Or you bring it back in? Uh, I'll go. Go ahead, you hit. There you go, Aaron Barton there of Proshima Jornada um, on the show there. Really impressed by the way Aaron spoke. Very passionate about the Portuguese game. Echo his thoughts on Bruno Fernandes. Sensational since he's came to Manchester mm-hmm. United. And also interesting, Phil, to hear about some of the potential players that could be moving this summer. Yeah, it was, I must say, let me uh, compliment Aaron very much. It was the first time I've had an opportunity to speak with him. What a delightful young man. Really, really nice, good kid. and Very well-spoken. And it is really refreshing to see people cover leagues like the Portuguese league so well. 
Uh, we've, you know, we've so many people cover all the popular leagues, the Spanish, the Italian, the Germans, and all that stuff, but it's brilliant to see people cover like the likes of the Portuguese league um, that has been so kind to European football, of course, being European champions, and I've given some of the greatest players in the world. Um, so a, a big, massive thank you to Aaron for his fantastic analysis. But yeah, look, it's a league that... Um, it's a, when talk about it, it's an intermediate league in the sense that it's a brilliant league for South American players, especially Brazilian players who speak the language, to come to Europe, adapt to Europe, then move on to the big, big leagues, or develop exceptional talent and move on into the uh, other top leagues. So it's always a league where the big boys go shopping, and very rarely do you get bad players out of the Portuguese league. You know, they're, they, you're always guaranteed to have technical footballers. You're always guaranteed, you don't play in the Portuguese league unless you meet certain requirements. Bruno Fernandes has been just truly magnificent. One of the things that I like about Bruno Fernandes, uh, uh, Callum, is look, he has all the obvious attributes of a Portuguese player, but then he has other attributes that are not so obvious, such as what Aaron was talking about, leadership. Right, uh, A lad that has come in, I think you got him at a really good age of 25, where he's coming into the prime of his career. He's not too young. He's coming in, he's got big shoulders. You think about the balls, the cojones you have to have to walk in the club that says he's in um, from Sporting Lisbon to say, do you know what? I belong here. I'm the per- player that you've been missing. And you, we, we, I will take you to your next level. That is very, very hard to do. And he's done a fantastic job of that. And, and in a weird way, this coronavirus will have helped him. It will help him acclimatize a little bit more to England and his teammates. And uh, I'm, I think it was the second week into this. Lockdown, I remember tweeting out, I miss Bruno Fernandes. It was such a breath of fresh air to United team prior to that that was just so mentally frustrating. Absolutely, and I think Aaron summed up my opinion on central midfield players, and I hope, and I'm sure you share this as well, see when it comes to passing statistics now, statistics have their place, they absolutely do. However, as he rightly said, sometimes they don't tell you the full picture. You could have 92% passing accuracy and you could be a holding midfielder Mm -hmm. who, as he said, plays it to your fullbacks or just plays it to the central midfielders in front of you. But as you know and I know, having watched Fernandes, Aaron summed it up perfectly. He gets the ball and his first thing is, can I make a forward pass? And it reminds me of Paul Scholes. Not not that I'm labelling him the new Paul Scholes or putting him in that, that bracket at this stage. However, the reason I'm using that name is because, as I say, as soon as he gets the ball... Can I play it forward? Can I, if I can't play it forward, can I play it somewhere into a fullback and then make a run to get the ball back as quickly as possible? It's well, not it, just a lazy pass. It's a brilliant analysis because if you talk to people that go to United games or people that commentate United games, they'll tell you when you're watching United prior to Bruno Fernandes' arrival, one of the most frustrating things was that a lot of runs weren't picked out. Rashford would make runs that were never picked out. You know, they were way too slow in moving that ball forward. They'd almost move cautiously sideways and retain possession quicker than playing playing very, very quick wide men in uh, when they needed that early ball. I think this was one of the reasons why he wanted rid of Lukaku, was rather than hit a target man, they wanted men that would, rather than be in static centre forwards, who would come in off the wing and play in the channels, and uh, they needed someone that could link that play really quickly. Bruno Fernandes does that. And I would rather see, just like you were saying, Aaron was saying, I'm not really bothered that he has a 100% pass completion rate to Luke Shaw. I want to see three out of five passes make it in behind defenders that cause problems, that win passes, that win games. And uh, very few players can do that. Pogba can do that. Um, 
even in the, the little cameo where we saw Pogba come back against Watford, we saw him do that. He has a talent that you know, no other United midfielder has. Now we've got two that have that. And whatever you think of Paul Pogba, it's hard not to be excited by the idea of both them in the same midfield. The only thing that concerns me is, who do you drop? Because Fred has been sensational. Tomlin has been sensational. I mean, we talk about this United, so we don't need to make this about United. But um, I'm really excited to see both them in the same team. Absolutely. And, and adding Rashford into that as well. It'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see how United can fly out the traps. And to end the show today, we've got a question. I posed this question on CFB just to my, my listeners. And I said, if you were a player, who would you like to be managed under? Um, Brian Clough or Sir Alex Ferguson? Now, I'll be honest with you, and I'm going to be up front with our listeners. I don't have a, I, I'm torn in the sense that I can see the immense qualities of both. If I ask you, Phil, to give me the arguments for Ferguson and I'll give the arguments for Clough, we'll then let our listeners decide in a BTP poll. It's very, very difficult to choose. Um, Brian Clough's achievement of taking Adam Forrest from what was then, um, what, of course, the second division, up into the first division to win the league, win the European Cup. Truly, truly unbelievable. But it was at a time when there was much more parity in football, when the top didn't dominate. And even Fergie's achievement doing it with Aberdeen, you know, winning the league, winning the Scottish Cup, and of course winning the Cup Winners' Cup with Aberdeen was just truly unbelievable to end the old firm's domination in Scotland. Um, to me, was on a par with what Clough did because uh, the gap, uh, gap between Aberdeen, Celtic and Rangers was just truly massive. And they had to bridge it even with Real Madrid. You know, and, and what Clough did back to, to win two European Cups, remember Fergie's only won two, just absolutely unbelievable. I would probably say Fergie in the sense that he, he was able to do it for much longer. Uh, if you look at Clough at the end of his career and forced to get relegated, I don't think that's a blight on Brian Clough. I just think that he probably stayed in the game a wee bit too long. Um, and I, so, but the, the, anyone, it's very difficult to say. I know Roy Keane said Clough, but you always have to factor in Fergie and Keane's relationship into that. Um, I just, I would just say Fergie in the sense that he kept doing it. He kept rebuilding teams. He, he. What, what Alex Ferguson has done, especially when you look at what has happened to both these clubs since their managers left, they were never able to. I mean, Fergie, United have never come close to being what they were under Ferguson. Same with Forrest under Clough. It, it just truly speaks to their greatness and how difficult it is to follow men like this. I would just slightly edge with Ferguson in the sense that he was able to do it slightly longer. Uh, and you know, his teams, at the, at the, at the, well, he rebuilt the United time and time again with the massive pressure at a top club like that, where you've got a club like United that, are, that demand success. He broke Liverpool's domination in the Premier League at a time when it felt like United would never win the league uh, and took United from a club that were glamorous but never successful consistently to a club that was both glamorous, successful, the envy of world football, and uh, done it in much the same way Clough did playing football not all the time, I will say, but for the most part, Fergie done it playing football in a way that was on the ground, it was exciting to watch, it was with pace, it was with wingers, and greater than the sum of his parts. But Brian Clough was a visionary to play football on the ground at a time when English football loathed that type of football and really should have been England manager. Uh, and, and 
was denied a level of success that he should have been granted just because of the uh, of certain things about Brian Clough that were unfair. Uh, he wasn't trusted by English FA, which was ridiculous. He was their greatest manager at the time. And I believe, had Brian Clough have been given the England manager's job, England would have been playing football on the deck long before they ever embraced that. The Charlie Hughes era of knock-long ball never would have happened. And English football would have been spurred probably 20 years of, of being in the doldrums. Um, you look at the way they play today, that was the Brian Clough. That was Brian Clough's idea in the 70s. Had he have taken England job then, when he should have been given it, when it would have been what was his dream job, I think we'll be looking at a whole different era, not just of England, the style that England is, England are synonymous with, but we have been looking at technical players coming through English academies 20 years ago, rather than what we're seeing today. Absolutely, and in terms of Sir Alex Ferguson, as you know, everyone knows from listening to my voice, I'm Scottish, so I have a, a sort of a deep love for Ferguson in terms of what he represents for our, our nation. However, with Brian Clough as well, I mean, both incredible managers. In terms of Clough, people talk about the Leicester story, and I take nothing away from Leicester. Their achievement was incredible. People would say the same with Blackburn, albeit they did mm-hmm. potentially spend a lot more money. Yeah. However, with Clough, to get promoted to the first division, then oh. win it, then dominate Europe, is just incredible. And, and to sort of end this chat on these two guys, I don't know about you, but I just miss these characters in terms oh, of Clough and too. Ferguson. And, and the reason I say that is, obviously you've got the likes of Klopp, you've got Guardiola, you've got Jose Mourinho, but those guys have... I know what you could say that they've, they've built teams in the past. Of course they have, but there's a lot of money in the game now and there's a lot of commercial interest. Whereas when Clough, when Clough was at Forest and Derby and Ferguson was Aberdeen in the early years at United, even the 90s, it was about pure football. You see the rivalry between um, Clough and Reeve. You see the rivalry between Sir Alex and Kevin Keegan. We don't really get that anymore. It's more, it comes across at times as more scripted now than the natural raw emotion of those eras. And, and as I say, I just think the game the game should always cherish get people like Brian Clough and Sir Alex Ferguson because they are not only icons of football, but they're just they're great human beings. And people will rightly say, Oh, you can't say that about Clough he had issues off the park. Fergie you could both both of them for me are shining lights in what football management's all about. Well, first of all, <clears throat> Clough's issues off the field. Uh, we were well documented, but they were to be empathised with rather than criticised, in my opinion. I agree. I've, I've been a focal uh, proponent of looking at these illnesses as medical issues rather than ethical issues. Anyone who has an issue with a substance, alcohol, whatever, that to me is not something that should be criticised. That's something that should be empathised because there's usually medical reasons for that. Um, what Fergie did... Tainted, his, tainted him, in my opinion, with the Rock of Gibraltar and the Glazers. Um, and some of the things that happened with his son. I think that was really, really disappointing for a guy who always identified himself as someone with left-leaning labour values. Um, and then in the end, really done things that... Maybe there's an old saying, you shouldn't meet your heroes. Um, Fergie done things in the end that must be added into the final analysis because you can't forget that that happened. He had a, he had a role in uh, the Glazers being at Manchester United. There's no question. 
and his greed over the rack of Gibraltar was extremely disappointing. Um, Brian Clough, one of the things that I loved about Clough was he didn't care who liked him. And when yes. you don't care who likes you, you always tell the truth. And Brian Clough always told the truth, whether you liked it or not. So I have true, tremendous admiration for him, a guy who was talking about things long before they ever became popular. Uh, and in many ways was his era's Pep Guardiola, a guy that um, was a visionary, brilliant at what he did to, to, to bring Forrest up. But Berman at that time, they weren't exceptional players. You know, they were players that were great in some of the parts that played football on the ground at a time when English football didn't value that. I just think it took tremendous courage to do that, tremendous courage to do what he did at Derby, to, to, to walk out, um, to be a man true to his values, um, even at Leeds where he didn't agree with Don Reeve's management style. <laughs> and, um, you know, would rather have told the truth than tell a lie to stay in the job. I have tremendous admiration for Brian Clough as a human being. Absolutely. And just to finish with one quick cluffy story, um, as you know, I'm based in Scotland, based in a place mm -hmm. called Greenock, and a local player, Alan Mahood, who was playing for Morton, and he got signed by Clough at Nottingham Forest, and um, he went down to sign for them. And like me and you, if we were to get the chance to meet Cluffy, you would be really excited, iconic figure. So he goes up to, <laughs> he goes up to see Cluffy, he gets introduced to him, and before he gets a chance to say hello, Cluffy walks over to him and goes, Ah, see, you're the Scotsman I've just wasted all my money on. <laughs> well, <laughs> just you know a great guy. I, I'm so glad, Colin, you share that type of story because lastly, on that, there's been certain ex-players of his, notably Dean Saunders, what have you, that have shared stories about Brian Clough that in many ways I find disrespectful to Cloughy um, and uh, really mocking his alcoholism that I think really extremely distasteful, many of whom, by the way, claim that these stories never happened. Um, and uh, Dean Stone, Saunders tells a particularly famous one that is repeated over and over again, which I won't repeat, but um, the brilliant Danny Taylor, of course, who's now at The Athletic, covers this um, better than anybody. Uh, I strongly suggest you follow Danny Taylor. Uh, of course, he used to work with The Guardian, just one of the best journalists in the business, a fantastic human being, by the way. And I completely agree with him that um, there's some extremely sad, tragic stories about brands drinking that uh, really aren't to be laughed at, that are to be, to be sympathized over because um, it's an illness and something that uh, George Best, Auntie Best's wife said that is so, 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 so true. Once something becomes an addiction, there's no happiness there. And that is so true, and I'm speaking from personal experience. And so when I see somebody who's addicted to a substance, I don't, I, I, am, I empathize because I can, that person is not happy. So um, I have tremendous sympathy for Brian Clough. It's one of the reasons why I don't criticize George Best or anyone else who's had addiction issues because usually it's either through pains or a genetic disposition towards that particular substance that causes people to be in that place and they don't enjoy it so uh anyway brilliant topic there's no wrong answer there uh you would have been so privileged to play for both of them because both of them i think also didn't just improve people as players they improved the players as human beings they absolutely did and and just to round up the show phil i mean i've talked about the premier league return the transfer window We've talked about Portuguese football, the two icons of, of Clough and Ferguson there. And 
all these characters in the game, we just we just wish we could have more of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, they are to be treasured and and to share the stories as we as we've said there that mean something and that are not to say that you can't tell it's got to be a one way system, but show some respect. I totally agree with what you're saying there and fascinating conversations and just want to thank you, the listeners, for following BTP. This is the Global Football Show. We will be back next Monday as always. Remember, Phil and Martin have the United Show. Juan Arango is producing some incredible content on BTP as well. And trust me, BTP is only going to get bigger and better. Visit our website, www.btpmedia.net, and you'll see the incredible work that's put on there from Darren Hawkins and his design. It's incredible. There's competitions there as well. There was a Wolfsburg competition that's set to expire, but don't worry, there's a Bayern one coming, and it's incredible. There sure is. Yep, we got a Manuel Neuer shirt um, that we are going to make available in the competition. So bookmark the website, btpmedia.net, to find out more info. Of course, you can follow myself on Twitter, at Malakans, or this young man, at football underscore CFB, or, of course, beyond the pitch. Also, just on that column, the fantastic stories from that era. I'm delighted to confirm that we will also now be offering on a weekly basis a tremendous podcast from Jerry Armstrong, who catches up with people all from that era. Uh, he's had on the show already, Glenn Hoddle. Um, of course, he was giving us some terrific anecdotes last week um, about uh, about his playing against Maradona, playing against Alashenko, about driving Nelton John's Ferrari. Uh, he is a tremendous. He gives a tremendous George Best anecdote that I hadn't heard before. He's going to have lots of different people on. He had Graham Sinus on yesterday for an hour. He's going to have lots of different people on from that era. Uh, for Manchester United fans, he's had Sam McElroy on as well, uh, Jimmy Nickel. Uh, just tremendous stories from that era that we're excited to host and tell that uh, lots of our listeners, I'm sure, will find tremendously valuable and funny. Uh, we're excited to host that. So as Calum says, keep, keep checking us out. We're adding new content all the time. We've got some other things that we're going to be uh, announcing relatively soon that we're excited about, especially in the BTP mental health side that uh, we should hopefully have out this week, just before we go BTP Health and Wellness channel on YouTube. It's going to feature lots of different doctors from different professions, um, different athletes from different uh, sports that will be teaching health and fitness and other things that are that are so key to mental wellness. So, uh, for myself, thank you so much, Callum. All the best, mate. All the best. Take care. Cheers.